Hey, how's it going, everybody? This is Chris. Welcome to episode 49 of the Essential X Lapsed, where, well, today we're going to do just the best we can. Uh, not because we have a bad issue to discuss. We actually have quite an entertaining issue, but, uh, well, thing of it is, um, as I mentioned on uh, the previous episode, I'd gotten my uh, COVID booster shot. And I woke up this morning with a pounding headache and uh, no sense of taste. So, uh, I don't know what's going on here. I'm trying to see what the side effects of the vaccine are. And uh, unfortunately, loss of taste, uh, loss of sense of taste is not among them. Um, so, I really don't know what to make of that. I, I know what the loss of sense of taste is a symptom of. I'm just hoping against hope that... Uh, well, it's not something I'll have to worry about. Anyway, head is pounding. I can't taste nothing. <laughs> but we still have a, a book to discuss here. So we will discuss that book. And we are going to wrap up. Finally, we're going to wrap up the Factor 3 storyline, which has haunted us since, um, was it issue 28? So, I mean, it's a long, long time. A very, uh, a very odd, you know, overarching story for the Silver Age here. But... Uh, but we will be getting into it presently. But before we do, uh, this I wanted to comment that this is actually the oldest issue of X-Men that I actually own. I'm pretty sure I found this one like in a half-price books back issue bin, and it's not in the greatest of condition. And this is also before half-price books um, started to like represent themselves as uh, being like a high-end sort of... Uh, boutique store when it came to uh, the stuff that they sell. I mean, the name is half price. You'd figure things would be half price. Of course, that wouldn't extend to ancient comic books, but nowadays, I swear there's been a copy of Bayou Billy number one from Archie Comics with the cover off of it for $5 in their back issue bin. It's been there for like several years at this point. It's become something of a running joke between me and a friend of mine that this Bayou Billy was, will just not go anywhere and they still Refuse to lower the price on the damn thing. Anyway, before the painkillers kick in and render me even less followable than usual, let's get into the issue. This is X-Men number 39. It had a December 1967 cover date. The story's called The Fateful Finale, written by Roy Thomas, with pencils by Don Heck. Not a huge Don Heck fan, um, but I think, I think he's who we've got for the next few issues. Inks by Vince Coletta, letters Artie Simek, colors... Who knows? And edit Stan Lee, cover price 12 cents. Now, before we get into the story proper, uh, this is one of the issues, one of the handful of uh, the first 66 that have a pretty iconic cover. Uh, this is the X-Men in their new togs, their new uh, outfits. They won't uh, get these outfits until the very end of this story, but um, this is the first time we see like Warren and his suspenders, and these are like the individualized costumes, and, and we'll talk a little bit more about that uh, in a bit. But inside the book, we open with a split-screen synopsis, where our big bad, the mutant master, is watching the X-Men on both fronts, somewhere in Eastern Europe and somewhere in the southwestern United States. Now, we focus in on Cyclops and Iceman first, who are still trying to denukify the bombs at the American Air Police base. All the while, though, they're being attacked by base security. Iceman erects an ice igloo just in the nick of time to stop them from being kamikaze by a diving jet. I mean, this thing was just, like, gunning for them. It's pretty insane. Uh, they then find themselves inside the missile silo structure where Bobby coats the thing in a thick layer of ice. And now here is uh, one of the handful of times that I'm going to be pretty confused during this issue. 
Maybe I'm just dense. I don't know. But Bobby says that they're doing this because Factor 3 is planning on pumping gas through the missile's filtration system. Whatever that is. Um, now I thought the whole point of this plan was to set off the bomb behind the Iron Curtain in order to trigger the Soviets into lobbing the first attack, and then the U.S. would counterattack. I mean, if it's just a simple matter of setting off bombs and missiles at either location, it seems like that's something that could have been done with, you know, far less fanfare, right? I mean... Why get everybody involved? Why make this like a thing? Just do it, right? Anyway, at this point, our heroes are attacked by tentacles. It's like uh, we're in an X-Men hentai here. Uh, this missile done sprouted tentacles. Um, that is, of course, uh, the result of Mastermind using his illusionary powers. Then, Cyclops is attacked by Eunice the Untouchable, who has traded his normal red gear for uh, like a bright orange jumpsuit, which doesn't really do him many favors on the uh, the fashion front. Now, there are also some of those uh, those hooded Factor 3 goons here, and somehow Scott already seems to know that they're androids. I'm pretty sure he wasn't there when Warren killed a couple and discovered this last issue, but who knows? Who knows? Maybe they're using their Dick Tracy watches to uh, communicate. Anyway, from here we jump back behind the Iron Curtain, where Beast and Marvel Girl try to figure out a way out of the dungeon. And I mean, Dagwood sandwich time. We're going to just hit layer upon layer here. Unnecessary layers. Gene TK lifts a sleeping guard out of his chair and draws him close enough to their cell window for Beast to choke him out. I thought he was already asleep. Like, what's the point of this? Anyway, from here, Gene TK's the guard's key ring out of his pocket. And again, why not just do that? Clearly she could. Anyway, we uh, head upstairs where the East Germans have decided that they're actually Russians, I think, and they're uh, prepared to declare war on the United States, as they view the invading X-Men as American agents. So again, if this was the plan, why in all hells are Eunice and the Vanisher across the pond trying to set off missiles? This seems like there are just uh, maybe too many moving parts involved here. Uh, this uh, mutant master clearly never heard of the KISS method of management, did he? So yeah, World War III is just about to be declared when Beast shows up and tries to sweet-talk the comrades in Russian. Then Angel swoops in and punches a pair of Ruskies. Uh, Gene then TKs the bomb-filled briefcase out of one of their hands. And I mean, the bomb's in a briefcase. And we saw last issue that it was a pretty big bomb. Wouldn't these goofs realize that their briefcase is, you know, not only ticking, but like a whole lot heavier than usual? Oh well. From here, the blob hits the scene. And despite having just been cellmates with the X-Men, he immediately starts attacking the good guys. He yanks the bomb-filled briefcase out of Gene's TK trail. From here, we hop back to the States, where Bobby and Scott fight Eunice and the Vanisher. Our heroes then remember their Krakoan training from the Wild Hunt and decide to <clears throat> use their powers in tandem. Bobby lays down a ton of ice, which Slim then starts zacking, uh, which causes a thick, wintry fog to overcome the area, giving them the opportunity to slip away. Now, having already ixnade the missiles, they load into their Factor 3 UFO and are headed back over to Eastern Europe. Speaking of Europe, well, the blob, he's still got that bomb-filled briefcase, and he's refusing to give it up. Now, his thinking is, hey, just let the thing explode, because he's the blob, damn it, he'll survive the blast. Then, Gene puts a thought into his head that, you know what, pal, maybe you won't. It doesn't take much more than that to convince uh, old Dukes that she might just be right. He drops the case and then Kool-Aid mans through a nearby wall. 
Gene TKs the case again, handing it off to Warren, who takes to the skies and hurls it way up into the atmosphere, where it ultimately goes Baroom. Now, the Ruskies now realize that the X-Men are their friends, and ah, what a country America is. And so the X-Men trio are set free. The mutant masters use his nebulous supervillain monitors to watch all of this play out. And as you might imagine, he ain't all that happy. He also wonders where his accursed second-in-command, the Changeling, has gotten off to. Shortly, Bobby and Scott arrive at Factor 3's base, where they're attacked by the Mutant Master's mobile platform. They then find themselves surrounded by the rest of the goofs, Vanisher, Eunice, Blob, and Mastermind. Luckily for them, Hank, Warren, and Gene have also just arrived as well, and so it looks like we're about to throw hands. But then, Professor X calls for them to all settle their tea kettles. You see, the mutants aren't each other's enemies. The only real enemy here is the Dread Mutant Master. The Big Bad insists that, uh, well, Xavier's lying, because the Mutant Master is the evilest of all evil mutants, and he's bent on crushing Homo sapiens. Not so fast, says Charlie, and he lays out a few examples of how untrustworthy the M.M. is. He asks some questions, like, uh, well, why didn't he just kill the X-Men a couple issues back instead of attaching them to that stupid-ass Oblivio Ray? Also, why did he let the X-Men escape via the UFOs? Xavier posits that this was because the Mutant Master wanted the X-Men to escape. Now, this causes Eunice's ears to perk up, and he asks if the Mutant Master is with them or against them. At this point, the Big Bad orders that Factor 3 kill Professor X. But again, not so fast. Xavier asks if the Master is only ordering him dead so that his lackeys don't find out his true purpose. Like, why is he so hell-bent on fomenting World War III? At this point, the Mutant Master panics and dispatches a gaggle of his hooded androids to attack all of the mutants. Nearby, Banshee wakes up and he wanders into the scene of X-Man and Evil Mutant working together. And so he decides to... You know, scream. That's pretty much what he's going to do in 90% of situations. Anyway, this screaming wail is so powerful that it destroys the Mutant Master's mobile platform, which reveals the Master himself as being some sort of tentacled Lovecraftian horror. No longer protected by his mobile platform armor, the mutants, good and bad, proceed to beat the holy hell out of the space octopus that was the Mutant Master. The Betty then tentacles over to a computer console and hits a fatal button, which causes all of the Factor 3 androids to start exploding. Suddenly, a second Professor X appears. Now, he points to the first Professor X and psychically tells Gene to capture him. And this is kind of confusing. Uh, now, the second Chuck says to capture the first Chuck because he, the first Chuck, is the only true Charles Xavier? I mean, that's either a misprint or I'm an idiot. Anyway, Gene nabs the other Chuck, who is, duh, the Changeling. Then the Mutant Master dies, having suicided himself rather than be taken captive. Uh, we do learn that he was one of the Syrian race. As the dust settles, the evil mutants leave peacefully, though they do warn that the next time they cross paths with the X-Men, it will be his enemies. Unless, of course, they start like an island nation where one will become a bartender, uh, another will be a board member at X-Corp, another will be a reserve member of X-Force, and the other will be an especially uninteresting bit of Krakoan wallpaper. Um, now all the mutants jam out of the Alps, just in the nick of time, as the place explodes shortly after takeoff. We wrap up back at the mansion, where Marvel Girl presents the team with something she'd been working on in secret. New costumes. 
And these actually look like new costumes Not like the last two or three times they've gotten new costumes Where they like, okay, now you have a red belt These are actually different uh, Like Scott's lost like the yellow tank top that goes over his tights here It's just a blue, you know, chest piece Which is pretty cool um, Beast is now sporting blue and red Bobby's got himself some new boots uh, Jean is in her like current year Marvel Girl getup Like the, the green with the yellow uh, cat's eye deal I quite like that. I, I, I hear a lot of people don't, but I, I think it looks really good. And finally, we've got Angel, who is wearing perhaps the gaudiest costume this side of Kitty Pride. I mean, like the changeling would look at, uh, at Warren and be like, wow, dude, you need to tone that down. I almost think Gene's pranking him here, right? Uh, he, it, it, the, the costume, you have to see it to believe it, and I'm sure a lot of you have seen it. It's black knee-high boots, bright red pants, with a yellow onesie, like, complete with trunks, um, and a baby blue head sock. His hair does show, which is different. But the thing that I think a lot of us point to with this costume is the suspenders. I, I don't know why Warren's wearing suspenders. Now, Warren does appear to dig the look, though. He says that now he looks like a real angel. Which makes me wonder, like, which Bible uh, Homeboy's been reading, because I don't know. Uh, we wrap up with Professor X telling them that they'd earned these new individualized costumes as he now considers them all to be adults. They've proven themselves to be their own people, and so their wardrobe should reflect that. Uh, they no longer look like they've been pumped off of an assembly line. That's the end of Factor 3, but uh, not the end of the issue here. We do have our backup, which is another from the Origins of the X-Men series. This one's called Lonely Are the Hunted. Written by Roy Thomas with pencils by Werner Roth. Inks John Verporten. Letters Al Kurzrock. Um, colors, who knows. Uh, edits Stan Lee. Now, we pick up this story with Scott Summers having just blasted that AC unit, ducking down an alley lest he be beaten to death by the angry mob of fear and hate. Now, rather than return to Mr. Sinister's home for foundlings, or uh, the Sunset Orphanage, uh, Scott decides to take up the hobo's life and he hops onto a passing freight train. Back in Washington, D.C., Professor X learns all about the boy named Scott Summers. Fred Duncan, who in between panels took the time to dye his very blonde hair brown, puts a call into the orphanage. Now they learn that Scott ain't there, he's gone. He was on a trip with a Mr. Lamb out to New York City, but disappeared. The police are involved, but there are no leads just yet. Xavier then decides that they ought to get a hold of Scott's eye doctor. Okay. Uh, well, anyway, Chuck visits with the optometrist, who tells him that he'd long suspected Scotty of being a little bit different. He'd noticed a glow in his eyes, and he got, like, really bad tension headaches. So, he began prescribing him glasses with bits of ruby quartz in them. So, first mention of ruby quartz, how about that? The doc then asks the prof if he thinks mutants really are the menace that the media thinks they are, but our man is too lost in thought to even respond. We rejoin Scott as he hops off the freight train, where then he follows his nose to a hobo fire where he's invited to sit a spell and share in the possum or whatever varmint they've got on the menu this evening. Then they dogpile him. Now he assures them that he's got no wallet and really nothing of value, but of course he does have those fancy spectacles, doesn't he? Now before they can rip them off his face, a trio of officers run up, which, I mean, how deep in the woods are we supposed to be here where just cops are wandering by? Anyway, the hobos run off, and the police pull Scott to his feet. Now, they want to get a better look at his face, and so off come the glasses, and zwack goes an optic blast. 
The police scatter and flee, leaving our boy pawing around at the ground until he reclaims his ruby quartzes. Scott then runs even deeper into the woods until he happens across a cabin. Now, from inside, he can feel a strange calling which beckons him to enter. And so he does. Inside, he's introduced to the first evil mutant, who we will meet next time. So, what do we think about this one? Um, I, I had a lot of fun with it. Uh, I can admit that it was definitely, you know, I, I called it a Dagwood sandwich, and it certainly was. Uh, there was a lot of layers here that I don't think were necessary. A lot of overthinking, a lot of overcomplicating that wasn't really required to tell this story. And I also posited um, probably, boy, two or three episodes ago that... This was basically going to be like one Silver Age story stretched out, uh, you know, as long as it was going to go. And it turned out to be, what, 11 or so issues. Wherein we get, like, all of this buildup to lead us to a very, very quick climax. That's usually how these Silver Age story one and dones go, where we get just all this exposition and information. And then with, like, a page and a half to go, the big confrontation and the climax. And that's pretty much what we got here. I mean, the mutant master was revealed as being that octopus thing, and then a page and a half later, he was dead. So maybe not the most satisfying of story conclusions, but uh, I tell you what, I'm happy the Factor 3 is now officially behind us because, in my opinion, it maybe overstayed its welcome by about six or seven issues. Uh, Next up, we have like a real oleo of weirdness here. Uh, The... Trade dress is going to change a bit, where it's going to pay more of a focus to the characters rather than uh, the actual X-Men logo. The X-Men logo is going to be shrunk down, and uh, the big words on the covers coming up are going to be Professor X, Magneto, Angel, Cyclops. It's it's really weird. It's I don't know if maybe sales were already flagging at this point. It wouldn't surprise me if they were, but... It's a pretty dramatic shift here. Uh, Roy Thomas is going to be leaving for a little bit. We'll get Gary Friedrich in. We're going to get Arnold Drake in. We're in for some interesting, if not a little bit spotty, <laughs> times coming up. Uh, as I've said before, like this this era of the original 66 is kind of a blur to me. So it's going to be really cool to be able to re-familiarize myself with them and also share with, uh, with you all. So hope you're looking forward to that as much as I am. But um, I think that's all I have to say about the issue. Uh, really not much to say about it. Other than, you know, it felt like a very uh, very anticlimactic sort of thing, and I'm glad it's over. Now, uh, let's head into the mutant mailbox here. we got several letters to go through. We're going to start with Nancy in Mississippi. Now, Nancy wants to know why sometimes the X-Men are drawn as having eyeballs under their masks, and sometimes they aren't. And this question's becoming quite the regular, isn't it? Also, she'd like to learn more about the X-Men's individual personalities. To which Stan says to stay tuned, pussycat, but uh, doesn't say anything about the eyes. David in Missouri says the art in X-Men number 36 was va-va-va-voom. Okay. He's happy to see Marvel Girl getting involved. He wants to see Cyclops more involved. He was pleasantly surprised to learn that Meccano, Meccano, was the library owner's son. Which, I mean, yeah, that was the shock of the century, was it not? Mm. He loves the X-Men's costumes and never ever wants to see them change. <laughs> well, about that. Uh, now, Stan says he can't wait to hear Davy's thoughts on the new X-Men gear and suggests that the fashion conscious among us maybe check out Millie the Model. Bill in Fargo says that he saw a recent article in Castle of Frankenstein called The Man Behind Marvel Comics. 
Now, it's a chat with Stan Lee where he talks about the Marvel method of comics creation and his hopes that one day intelligent adults won't be embarrassed to be seen reading comic books in public. Now, Stan plays coy about why this letter in particular found its way into the mutant mailbox. Tune in next time. Hmm. Gary in New York. Now, he pretty much liked everything about X-Men number 36 and pretty much just lists. I liked this, and I liked that, and I liked this, and I liked on page three. It's it's a list. We're not going to go through it. Gary also likes Not Brand Ech, and he wants to see the X-Men rescue Professor X ASAP. Stan says, hey, the prof is back, and also keep comments about Not Brand Ech coming along. Peter in England, he asks why the X-Men don't fight mutants, citing the Locust, the Ogre, and Magneto as non-mutant enemies of the X-Men. Also the Juggernaut. Also the Super Adaptoid. Pete's basically just writing into bitch. Stan then writes up some phony Marvel bylaws which state that the villain overflow from the rest of the Marvel Universe shall be dealt with by the extraordinary X-Men. He doesn't mention the fact that uh, Magneto is a mutant, though. Uh, I'm guessing, well, I'm hoping that Peter meant to say Mechano, Mechano, instead of Magneto. Next up, Les in Minnesota, who claims to be a rarity in these here letters pages. He is a completely average reader. You see, he's not an ultra-celestial intellectual from Harvard who will try and portray themselves as the smartest in the room. He also doesn't make grueling treks across the city to hunt down his favorite marvels to illustrate how scarily devoted they are to the cause. No, no, he's just a normal dude who likes Marvel comics and buys them whenever he can. As such, he's pretty sure Stan won't bother to print this letter in a mag. And, uh, well, Stan proves him wrong, and he also thanks him for his sincerity. Finally, we got Nick in Ohio, who loved issue number 36, but asks how Cyclops was able to use his optic blast to halt and lower that microfiche machine that Mechano, Meccano, chucked at him. And Stan says, he just can. And if you don't like it, you can go F yourself. Next up, the Bullpen Bulletins, also known as Who Says This Isn't the Marvel Age of Batty Bulletins? Not quite a tongue twister, but I appreciate the effort. Okay, item... You remember those Spidey and Fantastic Four ABC Saturday morning cartoons? Well, they're still a thing. And they will continue to be a thing for probably a very long time. Item! Stanley appeared on 91.1 WFMU Radio for an interview with Joel Scott talking all about Marvel. And I tell you what, I was able to track down a transcript of this chat, so uh, let's get into it. Now, Stan's asked about the Fantastic Four, like, where are they at? And he reveals that they just returned to Earth after a sojourn in the stars. When asked if he's always been a superhero writer, Stan says he's written all sorts of comics. Westerns, adventures, funny animals, war, just about every type of comic story there can be. Stan discloses that he was born Stanley Lieber in 1922 and started writing comics in 1942. When asked about the name Marvel being a reference to Captain Marvel, Stan informs Joel that Captain Marvel was published by a different company, Fawcett, back in the 1940s. Stan chose Marvel as the banner for the new age of superheroes in 1961. When asked where the term Golden Age came from, Stan says it actually came from the fandom and not the industry. When asked about reviving Golden Age characters for the Marvel Age of Comics, Stan cites Captain America, Namor the Submariner, and the Human Torch of examples of concepts carried into today's comics, but changed somewhat. Now, Captain America has an air of tragedy around him, being a man out of time. Namor is no longer a savage, as we've seen in X-Labs Point One. Uh, he's now a more majestic prince. And Human Torch is no longer the android Jim Hammond, he's uh, now the teenage Johnny Storm. 
When asked why Marvel made these changes, uh, Stan suggests that they were aiming for a more mature readership. They weren't aiming at the bubblegum brigade. Now, Stan wanted to take these larger-than-life characters and add a bit of humanity and relatability to them because these are fairy tales for grown-ups. And Stan sees this method as timeless. He says that they could have launched the Marvel Age of Comics in the mid-1940s and it would have been just as successful. When asked about his writing style, Stan describes himself as a good hack writer, meaning he can write whatever's necessary. He calls back to his time in the Army where he wrote training films, to his time in advertising, and now writing comics. When asked when, if uh, superheroes are Marvel's bestsellers, Stan says that there are a couple of war books that sell just as well. When asked about the competition, Stan claims that Marvel has no competition. The other comics companies out there are aiming for a totally different age group. When asked about his secret to success, Stan cites how Marvel books are the best to read and look at, and how he uh, speaks to the readership in a more casual manner, which makes them feel like they're part of a club or a family rather than just being a customer. They also don't write for the kiddos, but their books are completely safe for the youngsters to pick up and read. Marvels might be mature relative to the competition, but still feature no sex nor any real violence. Now, Joel asks about killing off heroes, to which Stan says the Marvel characters are just too darn popular to kill off. Wow, could you imagine that today? Uh, he also says anytime they tried to, they would get a flood of letters demanding the characters be brought back. Old Joel then gets a little bit controversial. He uh, calls Stan out for editorializing and preaching his beliefs to the readers. To which Stan says Marvel's number one priority is to entertain. Number two is to sell comics and make money. He says that Marvel may depict current events in the book and might even comment on them, but they won't take a side. Again, can you imagine that today? He says he'll support the boys over in Vietnam, but won't say one way or another if he thinks they should be over there in the first place. Stan says he and Marvel are very passionate about patriotism and civil rights. Now, Joel commends him for this, saying that, you know, if Stan wanted to, he could mold millions of minds. To which Stan says he's well aware of that, which is why he lets the readers make up their own minds about the issues. Now, when asked to uh, compare these Silver and Golden Age heroes, Stan goes back to the realism well. Today's heroes carry a bit of satire to them and an understanding of the fantastical world that they occupy. Next, we talk about villains. Stan says the villains have to be equal to or greater in power than the heroes, otherwise it just looks like the good guys are beating people up. Also, the crimes have to be, like, cartoonishly big due to the Comics Code Authority. Finally, again, due to the CCA, all villains need to be punished for their misdeeds. We get some Marvel Office tidbits here. Uh, Stan says that Martin Goodman is his publisher and has been his boss for 27 years. Stan himself is the art director and editor. Stan's hired Roy Thomas and Gary Friedrich to help with the writing chores, and Jack Kirby is the greatest artist in the world and is also a great story man. He can do anything. When asked what his favorite characters are, Stan says Spider-Man, Thing, Thor, and Hulk. He also has an appreciation for Captain America because he's such a cornball. Joel asks about the kind of research that Stan does for books like Doctor Strange, to which he says, none. He just doesn't have the time. So all the metaphysical stuff in Doctor Strange is stuff that he made up. When asked what parents think about Marvel Comics, Stan says that a lot of their loyalist readers are parents. Stan says he loves his job, he works seven days a week, and does a comic every two days. Joel asks uh, a, a weird question here. Um, he asks if anybody out there thinks Stan Lee isn't a real person, like Stan doesn't actually exist. Really weird question, and one that I'd never considered. Um, I mean, I guess just being a fan of my vintage here. Uh, Stan says, yeah, yeah, that actually is 
or was a rumor. The competition have even gone so far as to suggest that, quote, Stan Lee was actually 12 different Marvel writers signing one name, which is wild to imagine. Uh, the final question is about Irving Forbush. Uh, Stan says that Irv is a gag character who, is, who at this point has almost become like a living guy. All told, a very fun interview, and I'm glad I was able to track down that transcript. This was, uh, this was pretty neat. Uh, back to the bullpen, though, we have uh, another item. And it's a letter by Richard in Chicago who suggests that Irving Forbush has been appearing in Marvel Comics since the very start, just using different guises. Richard suggests that Irv was the uh, owner of the clothing store that the Thing destroyed back in Fantastic Four number one. He was also the wrestler that Spider-Man competed against in Amazing Fantasy 15. He was also the guy who didn't push the hold button when Bruce Banner ran out to try to shoo Rick Jones off the Gamma testing site. And also he was the private who Nick Fury threw a soggy towel at back in Sergeant Fury number two. Now, despite this being... You know, a pretty terrible letter. Uh, Stan sends him a no prize anyway for all of his hard work. Item. You know how Spidey and the Fantastic Four are about to be on ABC TV? Because they totally are, damn it. Well, ABC and Marvel are going to be putting out a special comic book to commemorate this. It's called America's Best TV Comics, and it'll set you back a quarter. Item. Uh, this is more MMMS rankings. It's rank number two, a quite enough sayer, QNS. Stan explains that this is a Marvelite who has had at least one letter printed in a Marvel mag. Item. Marvel merch is appearing in stores near you, so go buy some. Finally, we got Stan's Soapbox, where Stan reveals an all-new superhero appearing in the pages of Marvel Superheroes number 12, created by Stan himself and Gene Colan, and uh, that character's name is Captain Marvel. Stan promises that this will be daring and different. Next up, the Mighty Marvel Checklist. We've got Not Brand Ech, number five, which is uh, the same issue they, they were telling us about last month. Uh, Stan says it was so great, they decided to give the readers another chance to check it out. Uh, again, I guess. I don't know. Fantastic Four number 70 has The Thing versus The Fantastic Four. Spider-Man number 56 uh, has uh, Spidey fighting side by side with Doc Ock. Avengers number 47, Captain America quits, Herc at Olympus, and Wanda and Pietro captured. Huh, I wonder who they were captured by. Well, we'll be covering this issue in episode 53 of this program, so that might be a hint. Daredevil 35 has DD versus the Trapster. Thor 147, Thor versus Loki. Suspense 97 has Iron Man versus Whiplash and Captain America meeting the Black Panther. Astonish 99 has Namor warding off an alien invasion, and Hulk fights all the bad guys. Strange Tales 164, uh, Doctor Strange must rescue the beauteous Victoria Bentley, and Nick Fury versus the Yellow Claw still. Sergeant Fury 49 has the Howlers in the Bloodstained Sands in Ter of Tarawa. Of course, there's Marvel Superheroes number 12, which takes over the numbering of fantasy masterpieces, only with new content. And as we talked about during Stan's Soapbox, this introduces the all-new Captain Marvel. But worry not, frantic one, if uh, reprints are your thing. We still got Collector's Item Classics and Marvel Tales number 12, both of which are chock-full of reprints. Finally, we have the MMMS here with 26 new members, including a Steve Rogers of Sandwich, Illinois. Probably not that Steve Rogers. But that's going to do it for today, so I can crawl back into, uh, into bed and hope that I don't forget to upload this, <laughs> because I am not feeling myself right now. But um, you all know how to get a hold of me. You all know how to find me. Um, 
So I will just leave it with a giant thank you for uh, spending some of your day with me today. And until next time, as always, I'll talk to you again real soon. See ya.